I wondered if anyone was going to be left with all the names. I started counting everyone going up, but I'm glad you're here. Now, um, it would help me if you are closer to me. I did brush my teeth this morning, use my mouthwash. I don't mind if you want to be spread out, but, but the closer you are to me, the easier it is for me to teach you. Hopefully you have your um, guides, your booklets. If you turn to pages 10 and 11, and then for the second session, page 12, that's where we'll be. Um, it is going to help me immensely if you have that material, because you'll have the headings, and you can fill in with what you want, uh, but it will enable me to get through a rather large amount of material more quickly if you have your booklets. Alrighty, ready to go. You've gotten a good night's sleep. We've had a refreshing morning. Hopefully you didn't get so much food in your tummies that you're going to fall asleep on me. If you do, I'll look at you until you wake up, okay? Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the refreshment of sleep. You say that you give to your beloved ones sleep, and we see that as a gift and thank you for it. And now as we come to another day, you have reminded us that your mercies are new every morning and your compassions never fail, and your faithfulness is great. We ask that all of these glorious things that flow to us from the work of the Lord Jesus would be ours in abundance, not only for us as we learn, but for our children, and in some cases here, our children's children, as we learn the things of the covenant of grace in Jesus. We ask for your blessing now and for an abundant work of the Spirit in our midst. For Christ's sake, amen. Alrighty. Third membership vow of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is this. Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord, and do you promise in reliance on the grace of God to serve Him with all that is in you to forsake the world, to mortify your old nature, and to lead a godly life? I hope that once these few days are done, that little phrase, to mortify your old nature, will mean something completely different for you. Because the entire theme of this section, the Christian's life and death battle, is on the mortification of sin, putting sin to death. There is an incredibly prominent theme of holiness in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are about Christ and His redeeming work. Christ's redeeming work is to make a holy people. We are to pursue peace with all men, yes, but also holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That means if an Orthodox Presbyterian knows his doctrine well and is not holy, he will not see the Lord. Okay? Jesus said, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And particularly in our day, when so much preaching is preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace with God, it's extremely important 
that we emphasize this theme of mortification of sin. Now, my approach in these morning sections is going to be expository. Uh, there will be some places in which you will turn to your texts, and I'll mention the uh, languages that are there, and I'm doing that in part because I know have pastors here, and this is a way to remind you again of the importance of our Greek and sometime our Hebrew studies. So it will be expository, opening up the Scriptures, but also systematic, and that's by and large what you've got in your outlines, a weaving together as systematic theology does these teachings of the Scriptures. There are going to be many. There's one particular text I'm going to open up this morning, but many principles that will derive from it. And right at the outset, lest they be accused of plagiarism, I want to give a debt of gratitude uh, to the late great theologian John Owen, uh, who lived between 1616 and 1683. Uh, Owen compiled, I think it would be roughly 20 volumes of material, three or four volumes of which are still in the Latin, 16 volumes of which have been translated into English. Owen was a nonconformist, not a congregationalist as we would know it today. He believed in elder government. Uh, Owen actually even believed there were to be ties beyond the local level in churches, but not quite Presbyterianism as we know it. Uh, but Owen was a masterful theologian of the Puritan variety, and I believe his finest of works, along with the divine glory of Christ, which I would commend particularly to ministers, is this volume on mortification of sin, about 80 pages of intense material. First time I went through it, I wanted to crawl under my desk as my heart was opened up and searched and salt was put into the wound and so forth. Uh, but that had a profound impact on me early in my ministry. I have been through this material several times with our own folks and in other conferences, and I trust that God will do with you what he has done with me and with others through a digest of Owen's material. I mentioned last night, Christianity is not a playground, it is a battlefield, it is not a game, it is a war, and we're going to deal with one aspect of that war, the war within, as it has been called. And I want to impress upon you as we begin today that the outcome of this battle for you, for every one of you in here, is either life or death forever. That's how serious this matter is, and I'm going to show you that from the text we look at this morning. So I want to convince you of the necessity of the battle. You're convinced from the OPC vow, but I want you to be convinced of how serious that is as you turn with me first to Colossians 3 and verses 1 through 7. There are two texts in the New Testament that explicitly speak of mortification of sin, of putting sin to death. Let me just read the first one, and then we're going to focus on the second. Colossians 3 and verses 1 through 7. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, now watch the phrase. See, this is not my idea of what holiness is. I've been in conferences where people have a serious problem with this emphasis on putting sin to death. And if you have a problem with it, then you have a problem with the Holy Spirit who has said, Therefore, put to death, necrosate, regard as dead, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God literally comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's another name for the children of the devil. 
in which you yourselves, now by profession, of course, children of God, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Therefore put to death, regard as dead, your members which are on the earth. Now if you look at Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul develops the theme in a similar manner, but with a different emphasis. Romans 8 and verse 12. In Colossians, Paul says, Regard your members as dead. In Romans 8 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And I want you to notice what he says. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, I'm only speaking hypothetically to you, but even though it's only hypothetical, I'm telling you that if just hypothetically speaking, you were possibly to live according to the flesh, you might die. He didn't say that. He says, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, he's not a closet Arminian. Paul knows very well that in many, profession of Christ is not possession of Christ. Many are called. Few are chosen. And so in terms of the outworking of God's election in history, the evidence of election is that you do not live according to the flesh, for if you do, you will die, but rather if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. And that's our phrase for these morning sessions. If by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the text. Let me look with you in the first place, in this first session, at the theme of the battle, and then second, with the time that we have left, why the battle is necessary. Let's look at the battle first and note the outline that's given on page 10 in your handbooks that you have. First, notice how the battle is described. It is described here as mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the flesh, or as it's translated here, the body. Now, flesh or body, the Greek word is somatos, and it refers to the body, is not referring to body parts. Paul is not saying, literally, cut off a hand or pluck out an eye any more than Jesus was. He's speaking of human nature as it is corrupted by sin, what is often called the flesh. Here, soma, or body, is a synonym, basically, for the flesh. Verses 1 through 4, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, it was impossible that the law could do this in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now body in verse 13 is the flesh as it were working itself out through your own body. Now, I'm going to use this illustration tonight, so don't tell the children, but it's useful in this regard. Think of your body as a massive glove, okay, with fingers and a hand. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with a glove. There's nothing wrong with fingers and a hand. But the flesh is like the hand of sin that is within that glove, and it will animate the body to do wicked things. And that's what Paul is speaking of when he says in verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that glove, as it were, animated by the hand of sin, then you will live. Now notice he uses the word deeds, if you put to death the deeds of the body. This is speaking of the body as an instrument of drives that are corrupted by sin. Deeds are the specific things that the hand or the glove does. Look with me, please, at Galatians 5 and verse 19. And you see a similar idea. Galatians 5 and verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Same language. The body animated by the power of sin. Now, what are some of the deeds or the works of the flesh? Adultery. The body used, driven by sin, for promiscuous purposes. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lewdness. Idolatry. The body used by the power of sin to worship someone other than the true and living God. Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things do those deeds will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you can see how in each case, this body, lips, hands, feet, other members, animated by sin, bring about the deeds of the flesh. That's the language Paul uses in Romans 8. Now Paul says, going back to Romans 8.13, if by the Spirit you do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body. Now to mortify is to take away the principle of life or strength. If you say, I was mortified, for a moment, it's as if you were dead, or you wish you were dead. And that's the idea of being mortified, to put something to death. Now, you notice that Paul is speaking of a life and death struggle. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a life and death struggle that he's dealing with. What he's saying here is that indwelling sin is a murderer that needs to be killed. I want you to think about that very seriously. If you live according to the flesh, my dear brothers and sisters, you're going to die no matter how much you profess Christ. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Now, what is this putting the deeds of the flesh to death? Well, this is accomplished in two ways. Remember that Paul says in Colossians 3, reckon yourselves dead in Christ. Because in the first place, this death comes principially or meritoriously in Christ. Look at Romans 6 and verse 6. And in an interesting technical use of the term, Paul speaks of a principial or a meritorious death in Christ. Because of Christ's merit, this is true. Knowing this, Romans 6 and verse 6, that our old man was crucified with Him, with Jesus. And the term that he uses here is a term that means literally that. 
our old man, our old self, what we are in Adam, was with Christ crucified, with Him on the cross, put to death, in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Colossians 3 and verse 3 again. Reckon yourselves indeed dead to sin. You believe in Christ. You say, in principle, I died to sin on the cross. Now that is a difficult thing to understand. I'll try to illustrate it in just a moment. But there's another side to this putting sin to death or mortifying it. And that is progressively we put sin to death. And that is necessary and possible by Christ. If you by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Don't read that to say, if Christ in us puts the deeds, if you, by the Spirit, do it. Now let me give you an illustration. And this is often used, and rightly used, to illustrate what happened on the day of resurrection. When Jesus broke the power of the devil. June 6th, 1944, an event made very, very vivid even to our generation through Saving Private Ryan. Men come across the English Channel and there's a serious attack on them. Many of them are killed. But they invade Normandy Beach and they break the back of Hitler's power. Meritoriously, definitively, the war was done at the end of June 6, 1944. Right? But there were many, many months of mopping up operations before the Germans surrendered. Meritoriously, in Christ, D-Day, defeat of the devil day for all those of you who profess Him. But in your Christian life, there's got to be mopping up operations. I'm going to tell you something. There'll never be a real surrender until Christ comes back. But that's a whole other story. But that's, that's the idea of meritorious or principial and progressive. The Christian life, then, is becoming what you are as new creatures in the Lord Jesus. I am holy in Christ. I am a victor in the Lord Jesus, and you are to become what you are. But that's the battle that's described. Looking back at Romans 8, the battle is described as mortifying the deeds of the flesh or the body. Now note second, the soldiers in this battle. Paul says, for if you, plural, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Those are the soldiers. They are brethren. Those who, verses 1 through 4, don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They are those who are made free from the law of sin and death. And they are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They are brethren, professed believers in Christ. Paul addresses the entire congregation as believers. Paul, quite frankly, isn't giving this message for unbelievers. I would never preach or teach what I'm doing with a group of unbelievers here. Because I can't do it. They haven't died in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, what they will do if they hear this is they will become self-righteous. Remember what the Jews did? Being ignorant of God's righteousness. They didn't submit to the righteousness of God and the gospel, but they sought to establish their own righteousness and they stumbled and fell. And that's what unbelievers would do with this material. And Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? Nothing at all. John 15:5. Okay. So this is dealing with professed believers in the Lord Jesus. And what is their duty? Let me quote Owen. He said, the finest believers who are with the greatest assurance freed from the condemnation and power of sin still must make it their business throughout their lives to mortify 
the indwelling power of sin. Or in the theme of the conference, when you become a Christian, you become a soldier. And while I wouldn't apply the standard to the nation, this is one war in which even the women are conscripted, conscripted and they must fight the battle, the war with the world, the flesh, and with the devil. So the soldiers are professed believers in Christ. You, brethren. Number three, the great weapon. If I may use that term at this point for the battle, the great weapon for the battle is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is the one in view. When you read in verse 9, but you, if you, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, that is in the Holy Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, good lesson that Jesus is God, Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit is in view. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, a lesson in which the Spirit, along with the Father and the Son together, were involved in their Trinitarian majesty and power in the resurrection of the Son from the dead. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you. In verses 14 and 15, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption, by whom, not a force, but by a person, by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. And verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is the way, this is the work of the Spirit. Paul is speaking here. The great weapon for the battle is the Spirit, human nature, redeemed, directed, and controlled by Christ through the Spirit. Now, an appeal for my pastor friends here. And I am preaching this to myself as well as to you. But my dear brothers, one of the mandates that we have is to let our people get beyond cliches in their theology. I dare say, you ask any Christian, particularly one who's done some study in the Reformed faith, and you ask them, what's a Christian? They'd say, well, it's someone who is indwelt by the Spirit. Okay, the Spirit of God changes their hearts. That's a factual calling. He indwells them. And we say, praise the Lord. There's someone who understands the third point of Calvinism, irresistible grace, and maybe, or rather, the fourth one, T-U-L-I-P, fourth one, right. And uh, third one they need to understand, too, and P, perseverance of the saints. They may even understand they only persevere by the Spirit. Praise the Lord, they're going to heaven. I wanted to urge you men to get beyond all that. What does it mean that the Spirit makes people holy? Can you answer that? Let me suggest some words, and as a preacher, I've alliterated them. They're in your little manual. Let me go through them very quickly. What does it mean that a Christian is one who has his human nature or her human nature redeemed, directed, and controlled by Christ through the Spirit? Well, number one, obviously, is conversion. A sinner is brought into union with Christ's death and resurrection, and that's glorious. The living dead become the dead living. You, as He made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins. They are the living dead. But then they become the dead living. They have died in Christ that they might live in Him. Conversion. What does that mean? It means they have a new presidential administration. Jesus is the King and the slogan that He has is I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And they live under that administration. 
They've died in him. They're alive in him. But every administration has problems, and this one does too, because we're still dealing with people who have sin in them. What is the Spirit's work in the second place in his people as he redeems, directs, and controls them? Number one. Number two, he is the Spirit of conviction. John 16 and verses 8 through 11. When the Spirit indwells a believer, he puts a prosecuting attorney in every single believer. Here is a Perry Mason who will convince the believer, number one, of sin. They don't sit there and say, well, I'm not really a sinner. The Holy Spirit works in them and convinces them not only that they're a sinner, but they need to go right to the bar and say, Judge, I am guilty. He convinces. That's the meaning of the word convince. And he will convince the world of righteousness. He will convince the world that there is a perfect righteousness in Christ that you only disobey to your own peril. Number three, he will convince the world and he will convince particularly those in whom he dwells of the judgment to come. And we're going to see how that bears on the Lord's Supper a little bit later. But you know what a believer is? A believer in whom the Spirit dwells is someone who lives constantly realizing they're going to stand before the day of judgment. Not in fear, but in hope and confidence. But that's the Spirit's work. He's a prosecuting attorney. He convinces. Number three, he's the Spirit of consecration. Galatians 5 and verses 16 through 25. Lay that out. We are to walk in the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. There is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the work that he does as he redeems and directs and controls his people. Number four, he's the Spirit. And I love the way Owen puts this. It's great. The Spirit of consumption consumption whether speaking of a disease or speaking of fire and I think that's the language look with me at Isaiah 4 and verses 2 through 4 this is the spirit of consumption Isaiah 4 verses 2 through 4 in that day the day of the gospel the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped, those who have fled from the wrath to come by grace, delivered out of the bondage of Egypt and brought into the household of God. And it shall come to pass that he was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away, now watch, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the Spirit, you might put a capital S here, the Spirit of judgment and by the Spirit of burning. That's consumption. That's what the Spirit does. There's a judgment of sin that comes within a conviction of it. And then He adds that Spirit of burning to burn away the dross. Malachi 3 and verse 2, He is like refiner's fire, that is Jesus, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's the work of Christ, my friends. And listen, when... In the Old Testament, you are reading the redemptive history of Joseph. You are not just reading about one who is a type of the Christ who is to come. Joseph was a sinner, saved by grace. And redemptive history records what that Jesus is doing as he refines Joseph and makes him a holy man. But we don't preach Joseph first. 
because he can't save you. But Joseph and Job and David and Jeremiah serve many purposes. And one of them is they are pictures of the history of redemption of sinners. And so you learn about that. Okay? So consumption, refiner's fire. That's why John the baptizer would say there's a greater one who's coming and he will baptize you with the Spirit and with what? With fire. With judgment to come, but also the fires of holiness. And number, f- and also this is used in 1 Peter 4.12. For those of you who love the Greek and want to study it, it's interesting that when Peter says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that's to come to you, he uses the word puroosis, refining, purifying fire that's to come upon you. Your trials are part of that consumption work of the Spirit. And number five, to make it complete with the seas, the, I guess these are the five points of Reformed Orthodoxy with respect to holiness. Number five is conformation. Romans 8.29 We are predestined and don't ever stop there. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And you know the proof, proof that a person is not elect if they're not being conformed to the image of Jesus. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Incidentally, predestination. People say, oh you Calvinists, you believe in double predestination. I say, no, no. Don't believe in double predestination. Predestination in the Bible is predestination to be conformed to the image of Christ. And there's nobody conformed to the image of Christ who's in hell. There's that predestination. There is election and foreordination and there's election and reprobation or predestination and reprobation. But don't speak about double predestination. Use the technical language the Scriptures do. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all are being transformed from glory to glory by the Lord the Spirit as we behold the glory of the Lord. See, that's conformation. Okay, So that's what the Spirit does in His work. Now, there are two errors with respect to the Spirit's work in the battle. Number one is the error of self-mortification. Notice the way it's treated in Romans 8.13. So I love the inspiration of the Bible. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit didn't make an error in a preposition. He didn't make an error in an article or anything at all. Notice what he says. Romans 8 and verse 13 if, ye, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Not self-mortification. If you, through the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. The error of self-mortification is condemned, but the error of non-mortification is condemned. He does not say, if you let go and let God. He says, if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. See, all you've got to do is read your Bibles and you can refute most of the errors that have been present in the Christian church. Okay, number four. The promise in the battle, you shall live if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. Living here is eternal life in the ultimate sense. Galatians 6 and verse 8. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Okay? Everlasting life in the ultimate sense. But it's also speaking of the joy and the comfort and the vigor of eternal life right now. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 3.8, Now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Parents, can you say that about your children? You know what that is. There's a life and there is a vigor and a comfort of your eternal life when you and your children stand fast in the Lord. True holiness brings real happiness. That's what Jesus meant when He said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Okay, And then finally, notice the condition here. There is a condition. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Not implying uncertainty. 
That's the way an Arminian would look at this text. In James 4 and verse 15, the Apostle James says, If the Lord wills, we'll do such and so. And despite what some woolly-haired theologians may say today, the Lord is not waiting for us to make the decision so he knows what to do next. What James says is, the Lord wills it, the Lord ordains it, we'll do it. No uncertainty at all in it. But he's not speaking so much like that as what he is saying is he's speaking of a certainty of connection. For example, if I say you have high cholesterol level, if you take this medicine every day, three times a day, your cholesterol level will go down. What am I saying? I'm saying there's a condition. You must take this medicine and your cholesterol level will go down. Okay? So that's the way he's speaking. There's a certainty of connection. He's speaking of means and end because divine grace comes normally in the path of human means. That's why we speak of means of grace. But the point here is there's no doubt of the outcome of the battle when you, through the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Now, I hope what I've done is convinced you that this is a life and death battle. Now, in the second place, in the 20 minutes that I have left, right, we break at 10.30? Okay, good. Uh, the 20 minutes I have left, and after this section, the next section, I'm going to try to work it so you've got time for your questions. So write them down. I know there's a question and answer time later. Although I've always found when you have those question and answer times at the end, you sit in here and everybody's got a question. You have the question and answer time, the hands go up, and that's great. And you only got five minutes to answer the questions. Then you say, you know, you've got so many questions. We've set an hour and a half question and answer time. We're all going to be together for it. And everybody sits down and says, okay, where's your questions? And nobody raises their hands. They have amnesia from the time that's there. So we'll try to give you question and answer time. All righty, why is the battle necessary? And you'll notice again, this is, I forget what page is in the next page, I guess, in your booklet. Why is the battle necessary? Now hold on to your seats, folks. That's all nice and theoretical. That's expository stuff. And now let's, as Richard Baxter would say, screw the word into the conscience. You know, sometimes preachers, they'll make their preaching like rain on a wax car. Nice little bubbles that sit there and eventually evaporate or roll off. I like to see preaching that has real big, rough screw bores in it and let it get right into the soul of the people. So let's screw the word into the conscience. Why is the battle necessary? Number one, because indwelling sin always abides with you while you are in the world. Speaking to brethren. Indwelling sin always abides with you while you are in the world. In the unregenerate, there is reigning dominating sin, right? But in the regenerate, there is remaining indwelling sin. That is over against all forms of perfectionism. I've got to be careful. I know this is an Assembly of God camp, so listen. I'll be a little bit lower in my speech. Or maybe they'll listen and they'll get their theology straightened out. Over against all forms of perfectionism. How can you believe in perfectionism when you read this in Galatians 5 and verse 17? The flesh lusts against the Spirit. Present, active, indicative, ongoing. And the Spirit lusts against the flesh. And these are in an ongoing way contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you will. Now that's over against all forms of perfectionism. And so when you get your friend who's just gone to a Keswick conference and comes back and says, Ah, 
I have let go and now I let God and I no longer struggle with sin. You tell them, you know, you have a pathetically low view of sin because the Scriptures say you are always dealing with what sin is in your body. You have both a low view of real sin and a low view of real holiness. So, sin, because indwelling sin always abides with you while you're in the world, sin always needs to be mortified. You've got to kill the enemy all the time. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Therefore, brethren, having these promises, let us just relax and go to heaven in Jesus. Leave the driving to Him. Therefore, having these promises, let us, he says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, and as some versions say, and the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's application. Listen again. Therefore, having these promises, that's what it is to be in Christ. Having these promises in which in Christ all of them are yes and amen. Let us. My Calvinist friends, Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. No, no. He knew that the Spirit indwells a believer. So the believer, by the Spirit, puts to death the deeds of the flesh. And you have an aunt. She's too infirm now to be like she was before. But we used to laugh in our family and call her crazy clean. And as I got older, I understood why they called her that. You moved one thing out of place in her house and five cents later, it was right back in shape. And if you dropped a piece of paper down, she bent down to pick it up. That maybe is why she's so hobbled over right now. Crazy clean about her house. That's the way Christians need to be about their Christian lives. Crazy clean. Can't be too clean. Notice again the language. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Number two, why is the battle necessary or B? Because indwelling sin is always acting to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. Indwelling sin is always acting to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. Look at Romans 7 and verse 23. Notice the language that's used. But I see another law. This is something you cannot break. And it is in my members, my body. It's this thing animating the glove of the body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. The word he uses is antisratuomenon. It is a strategy against me. This is a law that is in me. I see a law within me warring. It is a strategy against the law of my mind. And I would submit to you, if the devil's got a strategy against you, you better have a strategy against him. That's why we're doing this in the conference, okay? And bringing me into captivity, making me a prisoner of war to the law of sin, which is in my members. That law of sin is on a search and destroy mission. And my friends, it's on a search and destroy mission and it's against you. Doesn't make any difference to me how long you've been in the OPC, ordained or unordained. Paul spoke as an apostle and he speaks very really of himself right now. I seek not, I saw, 
I see another law in, not that was in, in my members, not that did war, but warring against the law of my mind, and that not in the past before I was converted sought to bring me into, but bringing me captive into the law of sin. What does it do? That indwelling sin that is always in you, acting to bring forth the deeds of the flesh, will number one, dispose you toward evil. It will give you a bent toward evil, even as a believer. Number two, it will begin to indispose you toward good and make it more difficult for you to do good. And number three, it will disrupt your communion with God. It's a form of spiritual arteriosclerosis. Sin will harden your own spiritual arteries so you can't run in the Christian life the way you ought to do, the way you used to do. And it will disrupt even your ability to live in communion with God. And the only safety is in constant warfare. That's the rule of the Christian life. And incidentally, your indwelling sin is most dangerous when it's most still. You know how I learned that as a parent? I had three or four children, and when they were rowdy, Margaret and I were on the ball with our discipline. But then they'd all be upstairs and it would get quiet and there wasn't a video on and there wasn't a TV on and Margaret would say, what are the kids doing now? They're just so quiet. And indwelling sin is very, very much like that. Okay, Number three, unmortified indwelling sin will bring forth great and scandalous sin. Unmortified indwelling sin. I did not say indwelling sin. You're never going to get rid of indwelling sin. I'll show you that next time. But unmortified indwelling sin will will bring forth great and scandalous sin. Jesus taught us that sin begins small. But sin always aims at the utmost. My friends, sin is like the grave. It's never satisfied. You work with anyone who begins to do drugs just a bit. Work with someone that tried crack just once. Sin always aims at the utmost. My friends, to put it very bluntly, each adulterous thought is incipient adultery. God lets you go and the fantasy in your mind becomes the reality in the body that you're next to in a bed. That's what Jesus taught when he talked about adultery that's in the heart. Any form of unbelief, any form of I don't really believe God has said is incipient apostasy. You want the proof? Study the history of the Presbyterian Church of the United States in America. Any hatred is an incipient murder. You come home after a rough day at work and you say, I hate that gal that I work with. I wish I could. And you would if God let you do it. That, my friends, is the grave danger of sins that you and I allow to smolder. And it's serious stuff.
There is no sin that the finest professed Christian in the world is incapable of committing. That's why Jesus' obedience, even unto the death of the cross, is so glorious. Number four, mortification is the main reason the Spirit and the new nature are given to us. Mortification is the main reason the Spirit and the new nature are given to us. Now, I know there's many reasons, but I'd submit to you it's the main reason. I'll give you a proof text in a moment. But just the concept first. The Holy Spirit is given to make you what? Holy. It's not necessary to call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit to designate Him as the third person of the Trinity. That's evident. The Holy Spirit is described as the Holy Spirit in terms of the administration of grace to His people. What is His work, if nothing else, than to make us holy? Now you say, ah, but pastor, He's the Spirit of Sonship. I know it. The Spirit of Sonship is to make you holy. He is the Spirit of Perseverance. That's right, it's perseverance and holiness. He is the foretaste of everlasting influence is to overcome the flesh. But if that's not enough, remember that not to mortify sin is to defy the goodness and the purpose of God for you. Jesus said, and this is my key text in this Matthew one twenty one, you will call his name Jesus because he doesn't say you will call his name Jesus because He will be the fulfillment of all of the 39 books of the Old Testament, though He is. You'll call His name Jesus because He will save His people from, away from their sins. He will make them a holy people. And my friends, it is your duty to perfect holiness in the fear of God when the Spirit of God dwells in you. Otherwise, you defy the goodness of God. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall you who died to sin live any longer therein? You know, there's always two errors that face the church when it comes to holiness. One is Phariseeism, and I abominate it. And in our culture in which people are out to sea without a shore, you're going to see more and more and more of it. We get more and more people that come to Franklin Square because they come from churches where they're told they can't be church members if they've got a TV. You know, the essence of true Christianity is you don't have a TV. I hate TV, incidentally. The church doesn't have a right to make that standard. I'm going to tell you the other error. The other error is to say you can be in Christ and you don't have to really be concerned with holiness. Christianity becomes a head game. You prove that to me from the Scriptures. Okay, anyway. We've got five minutes left. Here we go. Number five, because there were two evils that come to every professing Christian who does not mortify sin. There are two evils that come to every professing Christian who does not mortify sin. Number one, to himself. For a professing Christian not to mortify sin is to lead to a practical or actual apostasy. to sink in. I read a lot of Baptist literature in preparation for a series on baptism. Of course, you know, Baptist views teach that you only baptize a true Christian. So if you're baptized, you've got to be a true Christian. Not once 
Did I ever read any treatments of apostasy in the Baptist literature? Because I don't know what to do with it. Not if there are minions. <laughs> I don't have a problem with it, I guess. But Calvinists really do. But we don't believe that baptism means everyone's a genuine Christian. There are many professing Christians. And they will apostatize, practically or theoretically. And that's one of the two evils that comes to every professing Christian who does not mortify sin. My proof, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. Paul says, But I discipline my body. I put my body in the gymnasium and bring it into subjection. I make it to be my servant. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. And don't say that means his usefulness is lost in his life. The word is adakimas, and it means reprobate. Paul can imagine, as it were, being in that crowd that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount when they say, Lord, we did many wonderful things in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You practiced lawlessness. And Paul, the apostle of the apostles, says, I bring my body into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be a reprobate. There's not a few of you in here who know of a former OPC minister who for 24 years was involved with Christian education in this denomination, but who, because of unmortified, indwelling sin, later had to confess a life of terrible perversion and has left the faith. That's real stuff. That's the real world. But the second danger to every professed Christian who does not mortify sin is a danger to others. Second thing is a danger to others, to others. A danger to yourself and a danger to others if you don't mortify sin. You can fill in the blanks. Don't mortify sin and let it take you over and you're going to hurt other people with it inevitably. What about the man who gives in to adulterous thoughts and eventually gives in to adultery and must sit down with his little boys and little girls and tell them that daddy's been unfaithful to mommy. That's what unmortified, indwelling sin in a professed believer will do. And it will harden them. It will harden themselves and it will harden other people as well. How many people have been hardened to the gospel from the scandals that have come to professed Christian ministers? Yeah? You're as serious about your religion as Swaggart and Jim Baker? See what it does? It hardens others to the gospel. And it deceives them. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He does it. Well, the principal of the Christian school, well, he was one who was unfaithful to his wife. He got a divorce from her and married somebody else. They didn't do anything to him, so I guess it's all right for me to do it. And it will deceive others because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I would submit to you that's one, of, that's one of the principal reasons for the weaknesses in today's evangelical church. You've got people who talk about a Jesus who died that we might be delivered from our sins and practically speaking, it's meaningless in the churches. Again, a corporate giving in to the power of indwelling sin. I'm going to tell you how painful this is for me. Give me one extra minute. I'm going to tell you how painful and real this is to me. Six months after I was installed in Franklin Square as a pastor, a Calvinistic Baptist man, a fine man, a godly man, a learned man, a fine preacher 
was ordained and installed as pastor of a church that he led from being a basic Arminian fundamentalist Baptist church into being a very fine Calvinistic Baptist church. Hundreds of people, many people converted under his ministry. Two months ago, he had to resign from the church because he had been improper with a teenage girl in the church. And you've got a corporate deadness in that congregation. If it happened to him, can that stuff that he preached really be real? Let me be as vivid as I can in front of you. When I minister, I have to ask myself if I would be willing to give up everything that by the grace of God I've sought to do with family and with church and with denomination and in some cases even with foreign missions for a little excitement in one small member of my body. Okay? But see, these are the things that indwelling sin does. That's why I love the story of Christian and Apollyon. He's got to do battle with Apollyon. And he's down and he's bloodied, but he's not out. He's got the sword of the Spirit. And he says, you're not going to triumph over me, oh my enemy. And he gives the devil a good stick. And that's what we're going to be dealing with in the time to come. But for now, my friends, remember it this way. If you are not about the work of killing sin, sin will be about the work of killing you. Want me to say it again? If you and I are not about the work of killing sin, it's going to be about the work of killing you. And your only hope is Christ, bloodied by your failings in the battle. The blood of Christ keeps on cleansing you from all sin. And you have sinned again. And you're naked before the holiness of God. And the righteousness of the Lord Jesus covers you again. You give in to your own indwelling sin. And you feel so helpless and weak. And Jesus says, I'm your helper and your strength and your ever-present help in trouble. And so, my friends, that's just the introduction. That's the battle and that's the hope. And hopefully we'll go back over and over again to those themes. Okay, we all need some coffee and a break. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you, I know not only about, some, about the soul, but about the body, okay? Some of you had a couple cups of coffee or even three and you had your juice over there, okay? And you're going to have your coffee and something else over here. And the way God's made up our systems, after about two hours, that stuff's got to go somewhere, okay? And you're not going to sweat it out up in the mountains. So make sure you use the facilities to get rid of it there and not in here. We'll come back for the next part. Let's pray together, okay? Why don't we stand together, okay? Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of Jesus who came to save us from our sins. And we are thankful indeed that every page of Holy Scripture tells us of him because when we read every page of Holy Scripture, we read it as those who still struggle with indwelling sin. And so we pray that all of the great comforts and consolations and hopes of the gospel will be ours. But Lord, let them be to us as we war against sin. And now we pray that you will refresh us by what is really a means of grace, our fellowship together. We pray, our Father, that you will not only bless us by this time, but our children as well, that the glory of Christ and the gospel would be that which we believe and love and appropriate even more for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Timing worked out pretty well.